Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, I am honored to be in dialogue with Professor Jonathan Adler. He is head of the Institute of Archaeology at Ariel University in Israel. Today, we will be discussing his new book, The Origins of Judaism, an Archaeological Historical Reappraisal, published in New Haven by Yale University Press, 2022. Yonatan, it's an honor to be in dialogue with you today. Thank you for having me, Ari. What would you like listeners to get out of our dialogue today? Um, Well, I think that uh, we are going to discuss the book, uh, the research that's behind it. And um, yeah, um, you know, it'll give a, hopefully we'll get a good summary of what the book is about. Um, And I I know that there's been uh, somewhat of a buzz around the book uh, in recent weeks since it's been out. So uh, if perhaps I could also uh, deflect some of the um, misunderstandings that people have had, haven't read the book. Um, and, you know, give, give a, ver- a, a basic idea of what the book is about and what it's not about. Sure. What are the primary themes in your book? What message and argument does your book advance? Okay, so um, what I'm looking at in the book is the question, when did the ancestors of today's Jews, which we will call uh, Judeans, right, we could also call them Jews, but uh, I think it's a bit safer to call them Judeans because there's a there's a discussion amongst scholars uh, when we should start calling these ancient people Jews versus Judeans. I, I don't want to get into that whole discussion, um, so we'll keep it simple and speak of ancient Judeans. The question that I'm asking is when did these ancient Judeans begin to keep the laws of the Torah on a societal level. So when did the um, the rank and file Judeans, the regular people that you would meet in the street, the homemakers, the farmers, the craftsmen, when did these people first come to know about the Torah and to keep 
the rules of the Torah in their everyday lives? That's that's the question that I ask in this book. What are some of the key findings in the book? Okay, so um, before we get to the findings, uh, we should speak about, maybe we'd like to speak first a bit about uh, history of research, what has been done before, sure. um, and then we can get into the method of how I go about sure. looking into it. So in terms of the history of the research, scholarship since the 19th century, European, mostly Protestant, mostly German scholarship since the early 19th century, uh, has noted that when you look at the Hebrew Bible um, outside of the Pentateuch, so you know the Hebrew Tanakh, which is refers to the the Tanakh is Torah, Nevi'im, and Tuvim, so the the Torah, the first five books of the of the Hebrew Bible, the Pentateuch. Nevi'im is the prophets, and Tuvim the writings which come after the prophets. When you look through the uh, the, the prophets and the writings, we don't find observance of the rules of the Pentateuch. So the, 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 the plethora of rules that we have in the Pentateuch, which relate to all kinds of things like dietary laws and the various holidays, purity laws, laws relating to the sacrifices, uh, just a plethora of, of rules which... Um, I would say, dictate the lives of Israelites from the time they wake up in the morning until they go to sleep at night, from, from cradle to grave. These laws are not portrayed in the rest of the Bible as being observed by ordinary Israelites. So, for example, um, we don't find any any stories about Judeans refraining from eating this or that food. We don't find stories about Judeans um, observing the Sabbath. Right? We don't find stories about Judeans um, fasting or, or doing anything else on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. There's no stories about Judeans um, putting, wearing fringes on their clothing, tzitzit, and so on and so forth. So, we never find we find stories about King David and King Solomon building for themselves palaces. We never hear about them affixing mezuzot on the doorposts of the new palaces that they've built. This is something which scholars already from the 19th century have noticed, and their explanation was that the Torah only came to be edited and put together after the Babylonian exile. And they drew this very, very clean demarcation between a pre-exilic Israel or a pre-exilic ancient Israel and a post-exilic Judaism. So for them, Judaism first emerges after the Babylonian exile. Now, the, the, the backdrop to this, uh, this model is a quite anti-Jewish concept that the biblical ancient Israel is this pristine moral uh, Israel of the of the prophets, right? This this moralistic kind of uh, prophetic uh, Israelite uh, religion versus what they regarded as a degenerate Judaism, which appears after the Babylonian exile. This is this is the model of um, of, of these European biblical scholars, and while. So, so, okay, then the question is, where do they get this idea of Judaism emerging after the Babylonian exile? 
So we have in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah a story about a figure named Ezra, who is a priest and a scribe, who is said to have come from Babylonia at the um, at the instruction of the then Persian king Artaxerxes, and he came with a Torah, a Mosaic Torah, which he is said to have uh, read publicly in Jerusalem. On a certain occasion, he stood up on a wooden platform and publicly read this Torah, and the people of Jerusalem and the people of Judea who had gathered uh, in Jerusalem to hear this, for the first time heard this Torah, and they went about putting it into practice. So they went out, and the story goes that they built Sukkot, uh, as as they found written in uh, in the in, in in this mosaic Torah, they built booths uh, in fulfillment of the Pentateuchal instruction to build booths on the holiday of Sukkot. And so the, these European scholars saw these stories about Ezra, and for them, these stories um, were history. This is what happened, and it must be that from then on we have we have Judaism. From then on the Judeans of Judea knew about the Torah and they started to put it into practice because of the work of this uh, priest scribe named Ezra. Now, and then in terms of, of dating when this would have happened, so this is Ezra, according to the biblical account, lived in the time of a certain Artaxerxes. So this is dated to the middle of the fifth century before the common era. This is during the Persian period when the Persian Empire was ruling over uh, over the um, what had once been the Babylonian Empire, uh, from uh, from India in the east all the way to Ethiopia in the west, very large area. This was ruled by uh, by the Persians, and Judea was in the middle of that. And it would have been at this time, the middle of the fifth century, that uh, Judaism first emerges. This is this a model has been accepted by biblical scholars ever since. While I'd say that the model has shed its anti-Semitic uh, cloak, the, the, the basic historical reconstruction uh, is still there. And, and there's this notion that you have an ancient Israel um, and which ends in the Persian period when Judaism first emerges. The, the purpose of my book is to reconsider this model and to, to look at the question from a different angle. I'll get to the different angle in a second, but first what I would say is the reason why I see a problem with this model is twofold. Number one, the biblical story about Ezra is just that. It's a story. It is not history. We have to differentiate between history and, 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 and stories, and ancient stories doesn't matter where the, the, the story appears. Um, the fact that it's not that it that it's an ancient story doesn't make it history. We cannot as, just assume that because there is this biblical story about this figure named Ezra, that anything of the like ever happened. Right? We cannot just assume that there was a, a figure, an historical figure named Ezra. Uh, and certainly we cannot assume that uh, anything like the, the story that we have uh, in, in in the book of the books of Ezra and Nehemiah actually took place. Uh, so that's that that that's the first problem. The second problem is that 
even if we were to naively assume that everything that we find in these stories actually took place as told, the book of Nehemiah itself tells us that after the, this story about Ezra reading the Torah in Jerusalem, Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem and finds the people breaking the Sabbath. He finds the people intermarrying with foreign women against the, the, the Mosaic Torah. So even if we were to accept the, the stories that we find in Ezra and Nehemiah about this Ezra figure, nothing in this story suggests that this that the Judean acceptance of the Mosaic Torah was anything but ephemeral. We have no reason to think that this, this was something which lasted for, for, for any period of time. Uh, and as such, I think we need to, to reconsider the question and go about answering the question using a, a better method than just naively accepting the, the stories in Ezra and Nehemiah uh, as historical. What does your book teach us about the origins of Torah? Okay, the, the very simple answer, nothing. Nothing. Okay. I, I, I don't get into the question of, uh, of the origins of the Torah. Uh, and here's, uh, here's a good uh, place for me to, also, to get into some other things that I don't get into. So number one, I'm not looking at the question of the origins of the Torah, when the Torah was written, how the Torah came to be put together, and so on and so forth. These are questions that scholars uh, have been working on for two, two centuries, uh, even more. And what I would say is this is intellectual history. This is history of, an, of ideas think of the Torah as ideas. This is a history of how these ideas came to be came to be put together, how they were uh, written down, edited, and so on and so forth. I'm not getting into this at all in the book. My interest is social history. My interest is in what the people are actually doing. The people meaning the, 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 the rank and file Judeans, the regular, ordinary, everyday people that you find um, as I said, farmers, homemakers, craftsmen, people you would meet in the street. My question is, when do they know about the Torah? And when do they start to regard this Torah as authoritative? When do they actually put it into practice? So it's a very different question than biblical scholars usually attend to. So that's number one. I don't, I don't deal with the question of the origins of the Torah. The, another question which I don't deal with in the book is the origins of the Judeans, or the origins of the Jews, right? So we can have, and we do have Judeans long before we have Judaism, right? We have people who self-identify as Judeans, and these are people who, who they self-identify as Judeans, others identify them as Judeans, but there's no evidence that they are observing the Torah. So we shouldn't conflate these two things. I'm not looking into the question of when did the Judeans first emerge, or Israelites for that matter. It's a, these are separate questions. Right? What is your book's contribution to the history of Halakha? Okay, so again, if we are, if but by the history of Halakha, okay, so let's talk about some terms here. The term Halakha is the term that we have for the system of Torah, 
the system of Torah law as we find it in rabbinic literature. Okay, when I say rabbinic literature, I mean um, works such as the Mishnah, the Tosefta, Midrashe Halacha, the Tal the uh, Palestinian Talmud, the Yerushalmi, the Babylonian Talmud, the Bavli, and so on and so forth. Right. So the earliest of this literature it, it dates to let's say the turn of the third century of the Common Era and onward. This system of law that we find in this literature is, is called by, by the rabbis halacha. Oftentimes scholars use this term when they're talking about Torah, the system of Torah law as it was used by other groups, non-rabbinic groups. So for example, you'll have Qumranic halacha, the halacha that you find at Qumran, or the halacha of Josephus Flavius, uh, the halacha of Philo. I think these are misnomers. It's 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 both anachronistic and incorrect to use the term halacha when we're talking about the system of Torah law as it was understood by non-rabbis. So I, I, I don't use the term halacha when I'm talking about the system of Torah law in, in periods which predate the rabbis and which are associated with people and groups that are non-rabbinic. Non I, I wouldn't use the term halacha. Um, what, what I would say, though, however, is that halacha is a system of Torah law. There are other systems of Torah law. And my interest in the book is the practical application of Torah, however it was understood. Right. So uh, in a second, I'll get to the, the method that I use. But my interest is in the application of Torah law however it was understood. And throughout the ages, we have Torah law being uh, interpreted and put into practice in, in various ways. The question that I'm asking in the book is, when did ordinary Judeans regard the Torah, however it was understood, as authoritative and actually put it into practice? Um, perhaps now's the time to, to get into the method that I use, because sure. I think that's, that, 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 that's, that's important here. So the method that I use is actually quite simple in, in trying to answer this question. When, when did the ancient Judeans begin to, to observe the Torah? What I do is I take a period of time when it is quite clear there's ample evidence that Judeans were keeping the Torah. And what I do is I show in the book, chapter after chapter, that the first century of the Common Era is a period of time when we know that the Torah was widely observed amongst Judeans. We have ample archeological and textual evidence, which indicates that in the first century of the Common Era, ordinary Judeans were, were, were keeping Torah law. Uh, I'll get into some examples uh, as the conversation goes on, I'm sure. Um, but this, is, this can be shown across the board that Judeans are, key, are keeping the laws of the Torah. Of course, there are exceptions, but, but Large, it's a largely universal that Judeans are keeping the laws of the Torah when, when we get to the first century of the common era. So that's going to serve as our benchmark. We have Judaism in the first century of the common era. What I then do is I look backwards in time from the first century of the common era backwards to see if we continue to have evidence of observance, widespread observance of the Torah in earlier periods. So I'll go to the first century before the common era. 
to the second century before the common era, to the third century before the common era, to the fourth century before the common era, and so on, to see do we still have evidence that ordinary Judeans know about the laws of the Torah and are, are actually keeping them. And the, the bottom line, the, 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 to cut to the chase, the conclusion is that we have evidence from the first century of the common era, as I said, ample evidence. We have some evidence from the first century before the common era. Oftentimes we have evidence from the second century before the common era. Prior to the second century of the common era, and I would even say prior to the middle of the second century of the common era, we no longer have any evidence that ordinary Judeans knew about the laws of the Torah and were, were keeping them. So just to, to, to make things clear for our listeners, the middle of the second century before the common era is the period of Hasmonean rule over Judea. So um, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with, with the story of Hanukkah, mm -hmm. uh, with the, the Maccabean revolt. So these, uh, the leaders of this Maccabean revolt and their descendants were the Hasmoneans, and these um, these people uh, ruled over Judea from the middle of the second century before the Common Era until the middle of the first century before the Common Era, and it was at this time that we begin to have evidence for observance of widespread observance of, of the Torah. Now, it's important to point out here that evidence of ab absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. I, I think I misspoke there. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. That's what I meant to say. Which means that before we have evidence that uh, that there was widespread observance of the Torah, doesn't mean that there wasn't widespread observance of the Torah. It means that we don't have evidence for it, which in and of itself is important, right? It's important to know when we have evidence for this and when we don't. So what I do in this book is I show very clearly, it's a, it's a data-driven study. I show that there is no evidence, no surviving evidence prior to the middle of the second century before the common era that ordinary Judeans were keeping the laws of the Torah. Now, does that mean that Judaism begins in the middle of the second century before the coming era? No. It means that the middle of the second century before the coming era is what we call in archaeological parlance a terminus antiquem. You'll excuse me for my Latin there, but terminus antiquem means the terminal uh, point, terminal time, before which something must have happened, right? So the middle of the second century BCE is our terminus antiquem, which means that then or prior to then, Judaism must have emerged, which in and of itself is an important state. This is, this is the most we can say following the data as far as uh, when Judaism emerges. Now, that's not good enough, because then the question is, okay, when did Judaism emerge? And what I so what I do in the final chapter is I look at the periods of time before our terminus antiquem. These are periods of time which, by definition, do not have uh, any clear evidence of Judeans keeping the laws of the Torah. And I look to see, all right, do we have any contextual evidence 
which might help us understand what genes are doing. Uh, do we have any evidence which might suggest when might have been, when when would be the best period of time to seek the, the emergence of, of Judaism, the emergence of, of Torah observance? And, and that's what I do in the, in the final chapter. It's in this chapter that I look at the various periods of time before the, uh, the middle of the second century, before the Common Era, to see, okay, let's say the Persian period, which is the period of time, as I mentioned, when most scholars uh, think that Judaism first emerged, what kind of evidence do we have from that period of time? Uh, what kind of evidence do we have from the next period? the Hellenistic period, the early Hellenistic period. And th th that's how I go about, uh, th that's the that's the method that I use in this book. So the method is, again, taking the benchmark of the first century of the Common Era, looking backwards in time, determining a terminus antiquem, and then looking before that terminus antiquem to look for contextual evidence to help us determine uh, the, the, the date of the earliest emergence of Judaism, in a nutshell. What can be learned from ancient artifacts of menorahs? Okay, so menorahs are an interesting topic that I have in the uh, in chapter six of the book. I was debating whether or not to, to include that in the book, but it's, it's actually an interesting uh, and illustrative uh, topic. We, so we find in the Pentateuch, in, in the book of Exodus, uh, an injunction to have a seven-branched candelabrum, a menorah, made of gold, put into the uh, into the tabernacle. That was later understood to mean the temple. <clears throat> we have lots of evidence that in the first century of the Common Era, there was such a menorah in the, 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 the temple in Jerusalem. We have uh, Josephus describes it. And we, Josephus also tells us that the Romans, when they destroyed the temple in the 70, summer of 70 CE, they took this uh, menorah as, as booty to Rome. And in fact, we have in Rome until today, the Arch of Titus, with the depiction of this menorah being carried through the streets of Rome uh, in a triumphal parade of the Roman soldiers after the destruction of Jerusalem. So there's no doubt that there was, that there was this menorah in the temple in Jerusalem. There's also no doubt that Judeans knew about this menorah because they depict it in their artwork. So we have, um, for example, in, in Jerusalem, in the upper city of Jerusalem, today's Jewish quarter, excavations that took place uh, in the late 60s and 70s there, there was discovered a house with a uh, inscribed, or, uh, scratched into the plaster wall of one of the houses, a depiction of the seven branch menorah. We have these depictions in several places uh, throughout uh, throughout the land of Israel. We have in various places in Jerusalem, uh, Jason's tomb in today's Rehavia. There's several depictions of the menorah. Recently, there was a depiction of the menorah found on a stone in a synagogue in Magdala up north. And we have such depictions going back all the way to the Hasmonean period. One of the Hasmonean rulers uh, Mattathias Antigonus had minted the menorah on one of his coins, one of the uh, series of his coins. And th so this is something which we find in Jewish art going back to Hasmonean times. We have no indication 
of the menorah being known to Judeans anytime before the Hasmoneans. There is no artwork, Judean artwork, which or Israelite artwork for that matter, which depicts anything that looks like a seven-branched menorah. There are no texts which talk about a seven-branched golden menorah in the temple prior to uh, prior to Hasmonean times. So the point is that this menorah that's mentioned in the Pentateuch, as far as we know, is written down in the Pentateuch. It's it's in the book, but it was not. We have no reason to think that it was well that this injunction, this this commandment to, to have such a, uh, a menorah, was well known to Judeans uh, living any time prior to the Hasmonean times. Can you comment on the archaeological significance of pig remains? What do they reveal and suggest? Okay, so that's another topic that I that I go through. Um, so. Again, using the method that I that I described uh, previously, the first century of the Common Era presents us with a large amount of evidence that Judeans at this time were refraining from eating pigs. We have, for example, non-Judean writers, so uh, writers writing in Latin and Greek, uh, that are that tell us that Judeans were not eating pig. Uh, there are Latin writers that are that joke about the, the Judeans not eating pig. It has to be remembered that the Romans ate a lot of pig. Pork was a big thing in the Roman diet. And so the Judeans stood out as a, a group of people that had a very strange diet, that they refrained from eating pigs. Uh, there's a, there, there are a number of jokes that the Romans would tell about the Judeans as non-pig eaters. Uh, would you like to hear one of those jokes? Please, please do. Okay. So Herod was a Judean king, the late uh, late first century before the Common Era, who was known to have been quite a wicked fellow. So he, he murdered his wife, he murdered uh, his children, and Augustus, who was his friend, the Roman Emperor Augustus, once quipped, that he would have preferred to have been, if he had the choice, he would have preferred to have been Herod's pig rather than his son. In Greek, the, the two words rhyme. He would rather have been Herod's pig rather than his son. Why? Because as his pig, he knew that Herod would never have slaughtered him. But as his son, chances are he would have, he would have been killed. So the point is that if Romans are joking about Jews not eating pig, Clearly, Jews weren't eating pig because otherwise the jokes would just have fallen flat on their faces. They wouldn't have been funny. The fact that 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 the Romans were telling these jokes indicates that their listeners, the people that were that were reading what they had to write, very well knew that this is something that the Judeans were doing. They were, they were avoiding pig. Um, when we go, when we look at earlier periods of time, we continue to find textual references to this Judean avoidance of pig until we get to the Hasmonean period. Prior to the second century before the common era, we no longer find any any textual sources which talk about Judeans refraining from eating pig. You asked me about archaeological evidence. Now, when we look at the first century of the common era, we fought and when we look when we look at our um, 
zooarchaeological remains, so remains of animal bones in, in archaeological contexts, we find that in non-Judean contexts in the Levant, there's lots of pig bones. Um, I don't remember offhand the percentages, but the percentages are pretty high. Non-Judeans are eating lots of pig. When we look at Judean sites, uh, sites like Jerusalem and Masada, Gamla, and so on, we don't find pig bones, or we find close to zero uh, percentage of the bones are pig bones. Now, we have to be careful here because lack of pig bones, or, or any, any bones for that matter, indicates that the people weren't eating those pigs, right? If you don't have pig bones, it means people weren't eating pigs. But there's a difference between not eating pigs and refraining from eating pigs, right? Those are two different things. We cannot equate, we cannot necessarily equate a lack of pig bones with a taboo against pig. This is a mistake that scholars often make. They think that if there's, if, if people aren't eating pigs, there's a taboo against it. People are, are consciously avoiding pig for this or that reason. And that's, that's, not, that's not the case. So we have to be careful here. The fact that we don't have pig bones and the fact that we have textual sources that are telling us that Jews aren't eating pigs because of the Torah would indicate that, in fact, the, the, the reason for the, this archaeological phenomenon is because Judeans are refraining from pig because of the Torah law. But we, we have to be careful because if we are talking about a period of time where we don't have such, such textual sources, we cannot simply assume that we're talking about a, a taboo of, of one sort or the other. In fact, when we go to earlier periods of time, we find that um, the, the, the picture is a bit complicated. So when we go to the further back to the early Hellenistic, the Persian period and the Iron Age, especially the Iron Age, there's been a lot of uh, uh, studies that have been done on that, specifically by a team led by Vidar Sapir Khenin from Tel Aviv University and, and her colleagues. They found that in the Iron Age, it depends what periods of time we're talking about and what kinds of sites. So for example, when we go back even earlier to, to the late Bronze Age, we find that Canaanite sites tend to not have pig bones. Sites where there was an Egyptian presence tend to have pig bones. Moving on to the Iron Age one and Iron Age two, when we get when we're looking at Philistine sites, if they're urban sites, they tend to have pig bones. Philistine sites that are rural sites tend not to have pig bones. Sites in Judea, in the southern kingdom, tend to not have pig bones. Sites in the northern kingdom, uh, the kingdom of Israel, tend to have pig bones. So there's really a distinction between different periods of time, different, different areas. And the question doesn't seem to be so much one of taboo as much as ecological, economic reasons for why farmers in one re one region at one period of time would be raising pigs or would not be raising pigs. So this does not equal taboo. This does not certainly doesn't equal uh, adherence to some kind of Torah rules. There's There seem to be other matters at play which determine when and where farmers will be raising pigs. 
um, just to, 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 to give you an idea of what, what I'm talking about here. So I, I give the example in, I know in the United States, I, I believe you're in Canada, um, probably the situation is similar. If you go to a supermarket in Israel, in the United States, in Europe, and you look for goat meat, you're going to have trouble finding it. People tend to not eat goat meat. Uh, and the, I'm not sure the reason for that, right? If you go into supermarkets in Israel and you ask for goat meat, they won't have it. And it's not because of a taboo against eating goats. It's not because of any halachic uh, prohibition against eating goats. There's other things at play. I don't know if it's economic. Presumably it's economic. Presumably it doesn't pay for, for farmers to raise goats for their meat. Uh, maybe people don't like the taste. I don't, I don't know what it is. I've been told that goat meat tastes pretty good. I've never eaten it uh, because I can't find it. And again, the reason is not because of a taboo. The reason is probably because of economic reasons, financial reasons, ecological reasons, perhaps. Um, but the point is that the fact that we cannot, uh, that we don't find goat meat in the supermarket or we don't find goat bones in archaeological contexts does not necessarily mean that we have a taboo at I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. How does your book present evidence regarding the origins of the synagogue? How okay. is this presented in your book? Yeah, okay. So I have a, a chapter on the synagogue. Uh, and the synagogue, to my mind, is, 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 is a very important uh, phenomenon because... When when we hear about when we hear the term synagogue today, the first thing we most of us think about probably is prayer. And this was not what the synagogue was in in the first century before the, the first century of the Common Era. So in the first century of the Common Era, the synagogue was most definitely a uh, an educational institution. We have many sources, Josephus and Philo. Uh, the New Testament, the Gospels, and the Book of Acts, which describe what was going on in the synagogue. And the description uh, repeats itself in all of these sources. The synagogue was a place where Judeans would gather on a communal level, and someone would take out a Torah scroll and read it before the audience. The, the gatherings would happen on Saturdays, on the Shabbat, and once a week, the entire community would gather together and uh, someone who knew how to read from the Torah 
would read the Torah and explain it uh, to, the, to the entire community. And we have to remember that in antiquity, most people presumably were illiterate. Not only were most people illiterate, most people, and probably as a function of that, most people didn't have books in their homes. Right? So today we take it for granted that everyone has books in their homes. Today, not only do we all have books in our homes, everyone or just about everyone has in their pocket this little uh, glass rectangle that has on it all of human knowledge from day one on this little glass rectangle that we call a, a smartphone. This wasn't the case in antiquity. In antiquity, most people were illiterate and most people didn't have access to any kind of books. And the question is, how could the Torah, knowledge of the Torah, have spread without access to books, without, without literacy? And the answer was the synagogue. If all you needed was in your community to have one person who knew how to read, and for the community to purchase a, a Torah scroll, and you could have a synagogue. You can have a synagogue where uh, the community would gather together once a week. A person who knew how to read would read, and everyone else would, would listen. This is the way that, that the Torah would have spread. And it's hard to imagine Judaism uh, emerging and spreading without an institution like the synagogue. So the synagogue is actually super important for answering the question of uh, when and how Judaism spread. So the question that I look at in, in the book is, what is our earliest evidence for something like the synagogue, some kind of educational institution where communities would gather together and, and hear the Torah being read. And what I do is I, again, using the same method, I look at the first century of the common era, look at you know the, the, the evidence that we have for synagogues. The evidence is not only textual, it's also archeological. We have buildings which we find throughout Judea, which, um, which are essentially assembly halls uh, at Judean sites. And these were our, our ancient synagogues. These are buildings that have um, benches surrounding the inner walls uh, for, for several dozen people to, to sit on, sometimes up to several hundred. And th these would have been the places where, where Judeans would gather to hear the Torah being read uh, communally on a weekly basis. We have most of our evidences from the first century of the common era. We have a synagogue building at a site called Umelumdan in modern day uh, Modin in the Judean lowlands, which has been dated to the Hasmonean period. There is no evidence for any such uh, institution prior to the Hasmonean period. So again, this, this fits in with, with, with what we've been seeing with um, the, the practices and prohibitions like uh, the Sabbath, we, we didn't talk about that. Uh, we can talk about that if you'd like. Um, we just mentioned the pig uh, prohibition, the menorah, the various practices and, and prohibitions that I look at in the book, um, which all have their earliest evidence in the second century before the common era, the, the fact that the synagogue appears to have emerged only at this time fits in quite well uh, with, with, with all this other evidence. What does your book reveal about the evolution of kashrut? What new insights do you reveal? So again, I want to I want to stress the the distinction I make between intellectual history 
and social history. When you speak about the history of Kashrut, uh, the, usually what people mean is the how Kashrut has developed as an idea, right? So, for example, uh, it says in three places in the Torah, in the, in the Pentateuch, uh, you shall not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Eventually, that came to mean uh, mixing meat, any kind of meat, and any kind of milk, right? So I'll t can I tell jokes on this podcast? Does that sure. work? Yes. Not please. only ancient jokes, I can tell modern jokes as well? Please. Okay. So uh, the joke goes like this. Moses says, God says to Moses, thou shalt not cook a kid in its mother's milk. So, uh, so Moses says, I think I know what you mean, God. You mean that we shouldn't eat milk and meat together. God says, Moses, thou shalt not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Moses says, I know what you mean. You mean that um, we need to have separate dishes for milk and separate dishes for meat and separate silverware for milk and separate silverware for meat and a separate dishwasher for milk and a separate dishwasher for meat dishes. That says, Moses, thou shalt not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Moses says, I know what you mean, God. You mean that after we eat meat, we have to wait six hours before eating milk. That says, Moses, do what you want. So that's the history of kashrut, right? That's how, how kashrut developed over time, right? First it was, thou shalt not cook a kid in its mother's milk, and then it became... All these, uh, it, it became expanded to any kind of meat, any kind of milk, and then it became expanded to all these these expansions that I just mentioned. But but that's the history of an idea. The question that I'm asking is when people were actually putting any of this into practice. So I, I don't go into the question of the the development of halakha over time. My question is when. Were any, were any of these laws put into practice in any way imaginable, right? Any way that, for example, do not kill cookie kid in its mother's milk, however that was interpreted, but when did people know about this rule and when did they put it into practice however? That's the question that I'm asking, which, which is a different question than, than the history of, 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 of halakha. What can be learned from ancient artifacts of tefillin? Okay, so I have a, a chapter on tefillin and mezuzot. So we have in four different places in the Torah, two, two verses in Exodus, two verses in Deuteronomy, which speak about putting a sign, or the word is totafot, between the eyes, and, and a, excuse me, a remembrance, um, or totafot between the eyes, and a sign upon the hand. We have four verses which have, which repeat themselves pretty in a pretty similar manner with this this commandment. And in the first century of the Common Era, this was understood to mean uh, a practice, a ritual practice, which we call tefillin. So what was understood was that that certain words need to be written down, certain biblical verses need to be written down on on uh, on skins, folded up very small, put into small leather boxes and worn using leather straps on the head and on the arm. 
How do I know this? We have archaeological finds of this in the Judean desert uh, at Qumran and at other sites in the Judean desert, various caves uh, scattered throughout the Judean desert. We found uh, these, these ancient tefillin. We also have found uh, slips which have biblical verses on them, which have been identified as mezuzot. So in two places in Deuteronomy, we have in chapter 6 and chapter 11, we have a commandment to write these words on your doorposts. And this was understood to mean to write them down on, on skins and to fold them up and attach them somehow to, to the doorpost. The earliest evidence that we have is from the Judean desert and paleographically, the earliest ones date to the Hasmonean period. So this also uh, is an indication of, of a terminus antiquamate for this practice in the Hasmonean period. What can be learned from ancient fish remains in Judea? Where do okay, they fit so into the evidence you provide. Yeah, so this ties in with the, with the, the question of the, the dietary laws. Um, like I looked at the, the pig uh, remains, we can also look at fish remains. I published a study back in 2021, so we're going back two years ago, together with Professor Omri Lernow from Haifa University. Uh, Omri is, a, is the fish expert here in Israel. And he has an incredibly extensive database of fish remains at archaeological uh, sites. So whenever archaeologists excavate a site, and if they if they sift the the dirt that they've excavated uh, well, they tend to find fish bones. And when they do so, they bring them to Omri, and Omri identifies them. And so I've worked together with Omri to see uh, what what kind of evidence we have for non for, for for prohibited fish at Judean sites. So the the Torah in Leviticus and Deuteronomy prohibits eating fish that lack fins and scales. So only fish, only the only aquatic species that are permitted are are fish that have fins and scales. That's the reason why things like shrimp and shellfish are prohibited. They don't have fins and scales, but also fish like sharks, rays, catfish, which lack scales are prohibited according to the, to the Pentateuch. So what interested us was to see, do we have evidence that Judeans are eating these prohibited fish? And if so, when do we have such evidence? And what we found was that Judeans were eating species like catfish, sharks and rays throughout the Iron Age and in the Persian period as well. So we have, for example, in Persian period, uh, Jerusalem, several archeological contexts with catfish bones. And this flies in the face of the notion that Judeans were, were, keeping, were widely keeping the rules of the Torah as early as the Persian period. This doesn't seem to be the case. So here we have uh, actually positive evidence that Judeans are not keeping at least this rule of the Torah uh, in the Persian period, again, uh, in contradiction of the, 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 the axiomatic notion that Judaism had already uh, begun, had already emerged as early as the Persian period.
What kinds of evidence does your book present regarding Sabbath observance and Shabbat? So again, beginning with the first century of the Common Era as our benchmark, we have quite a bit of evidence that Judeans were keeping uh, the Sabbath, both Judean sources and non-Judean sources, uh, telling about the Jude widespread Judean, Judean observance of the Sabbath. We have, again, Romans telling jokes about Judeans uh, keeping the Sabbath. One of the things that really struck me as I was doing research for the book was that the New Testament is full of stories about Sabbath observance. Um, we have, for example, when, when uh, Jesus is crucified, the gospel stories about the crucifixion of Jesus tell us that Ju Jesus was crucified on a Friday. On a right before the onset of the Sabbath, and right before Sabbath begins, his body is taken down and buried in a tomb. And we're told that his disciples, after they they quickly buried him, rest uh, rested. They kept they kept the the Sabbath, and it was only they waited until after the Sabbath was over on Saturday night before they were able to tend to. Uh, the, the spices and the various things that, that, that they needed to for, for the burial. What, what struck me was that we find Sabbath observance in these gospel stories, the, several stories which talk about Sabbath observance in the gospel stories as something which Jesus and his disciples were doing. They were keeping the Sabbath. We don't find any such stories in the Old Testament. Where, where one would, might have expected it. We tend to think of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, as, you know, the, the, the Jewish Bible. But in this Jewish Bible, we don't find Sabbath observance. We do find it in the New Testament. Je as I said, Jesus and his disciples were Jewish. They were Judeans. They were keeping the laws of the Torah. They were keeping Sabbath. Now, that doesn't mean that there weren't debates over how the Sabbath should be kept. And in the Gospel stories, we find Jesus and his disciples arguing with, with Pharisees and other Jews about how the, the, the rules of Sabbath should be observed. But that doesn't take away at all from the fact that the, these people were keep, these Judeans were keeping the rules of the Sabbath however they understood them. And this seems to have been something which was, was quite, uh, if not universal, uh, close to that. This is the first century of the Common Era. When we go to the first century before the Common Era and the second century before the Common Era, we continue to find textual evidence indicating that Judeans were, were keeping uh, prohibitions on the Sabbath. Prior to the middle of the second century before the Common Era, again, the, the trail of evidence goes cold. We no longer find any evidence that ordinary Judeans were keeping the rules of the Sabbath. Now, to make, to make things clear, Again, because I'm not doing intellectual history here, um, I'm not going to attend to, uh, you know, what ideas there were about the Sabbath before the second century, before the common era, amongst intellectuals. We do find this idea of the Sabbath in uh, books like Jeremiah and Isaiah, which are earlier texts. They certainly date to periods prior to the second century before the common era. But these again are texts written by Judean literati. These are not representative of 
what the ordinary people were doing. And this doesn't, the fact that someone like Jeremiah or Isaiah speak about uh, the Sabbath means that there were people in these earlier periods that knew of this idea of the Sabbath and thought Sabbath should be observed in this way or another, but that says nothing about how widespread this idea was. And if anyone aside from uh, the writers of the, the Jeremiah and Isaiah texts uh, had any idea of the Sabbath and, and or were observing. So the earliest evidence that we have for actual observance of Sabbath prohibitions of one sort or another date to the middle of the second century before the common era. What evidence is available in the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha regarding ancient Jewish social life? Um, so again, my interest isn't in, in ancient Jewish social life per se, my interest is in Torah observance. So the Apocrypha and Pseudepigrapha, the various texts within these corp corpora, uh, have evidence that, that you know, that, that they talk about uh, Torah. It, we don't find it everywhere, but we have here and there uh, reference to, to Torah observance amongst the masses, uh, particularly in, in um, works like um, one Mac first Maccabees, second Maccabees, um, but uh, other other um, apocrypha works and pseudepigrapha works as well. Um, but these date to the second century BCE and onwards. So we don't have you know most of these texts don't date to any time prior to the uh, the Hasmonean period. And any texts that might be thought to date to any time prior to the Hasmonean period do not refer to widespread observance of the Torah. So there are some texts, Anakic texts, for example, which are thought to date to earlier periods of time, let's say the third century before the Common Era. Uh, but these don't talk about widespread observance of Torah laws. And any texts that we have in these corpora, which do refer to widespread observance of Torah law, date to the Hasmonean period and onward. What about the Elephantina papyri? What evidence do they suggest about ancient life among okay. Jews? Good. So um, a little bit of a background. Elephantina is an island in southern Egypt near Aswan of today, so the, the southern border of, of ancient Egypt. And there was a Judean colony living on Elephantina in the fifth century before the common era and we have because this is egypt so this is an arid uh, region we have papyri which have survived from this from the judean community we have papyri and also ostraca so these are potsherds that have writing on them and it's actually quite an incredibly uh rich um, I wouldn't call it a library, um, not sure if it even should be called an archive, uh, but a collection of texts which have survived from this, this Judean community on Elephantina. There is no evidence from any of this collection of written material from Elephantina that the Jews living on Elephantina knew of the Torah in the fifth century before the Common Era. Right, we're talking about the Persian period, that very period when Supposedly, according to scholars since the 19th century, 
Judeans had adopted the Torah as their law. In Elephantine, the evidence seems to suggest very strongly that there was no Torah. To the contrary, first of all, we know that there was a temple on Elephantine, a Judean temple, to the Judean god Yahu. Right? They they uh, pronounced the the Judean god. Uh, they 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 spelled it Yud Hey Vav. There was a temple dedicated to the Judean god in Elephantine. In uh, in clear violation of what we find in the Torah, that the temple or the, there should be no sacrifices brought outside of a centralized temple uh, in Cisjordan. So Jerusalem isn't isn't mentioned uh, in particular, but it, it's very clear that this the place that God will choose is in Cisjordan on the other side of the Jordan River presumably in Jerusalem. Having a temple in Egypt is clearly in violation of the, of, of the Torah. But that seems to not have bothered the, uh, the Judeans in Elephantine. Not only that, when their temple is destroyed, they write a letter to the high priest in Jerusalem, the Judean high priest in Jerusalem, asking for help to rebuild this temple. So it seems that the high priest in Jerusalem at least as far as the Elephantine Judeans were concerned, had no issue with them having their own temple uh, in Elephantine in, in, in Egypt. So, so we have that. And then we also have some texts which indicate that the Judeans in Elephantine revered gods aside from Yahweh. So they, we have texts which talk about Judeans taking oaths by, uh, by foreign gods. And we have one text which tells of Judeans collecting monies for Yahoo, but also uh, collecting monies for various other gods, like um, Anat Yahu, which seems to be uh, a female consort of, of Yahoo, and some other uh, Semitic gods as well. So the, the evidence, all in all, from Elephantine seems to suggest that not only were the, did the Judeans not know of the Torah, many of their practices contravene uh, clear, clear um, prohibitions that we find uh, in the Pentateuch. Now, there is a, a papyrus, which is often called the Passover papyrus, which scholars have reconstructed as referring to the, the holiday of Passover and including all kinds of laws that we find in the Pentateuch which relate to the holiday of Passover. Problem is, when we look at this papyrus, the papyrus is, is quite fragmentary. Only about half of it has survived. And when we look at the reconstructions that scholars have made of this papyrus, we'll notice that all of the parts of the papyrus that talk about Passover and that talk about eating matzah, eating unleavened bread, and that talk about refraining from, uh, from having leavened products in the house and so on and so forth. And, you know, all of these rules that relate to Passover are in the reconstructed parts of the papyrus. The parts of the papyrus that uh, actually have survived say nothing about Passover, say nothing about matzah, say nothing about refraining from eating leavened uh, bread and so on and so forth, 
this parts of the the papyrus have, that, that have survived uh, seem to be speaking about something else. They they talk about drinking or not drinking fermented beverages. Um, the 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 even though it seems that the dates coincide with what we know of as the festival of unleavened bread, the the, the dates are something about the fifteenth to the twenty first of some month. Probably Nisan is meant because we find that on the other side of the papyrus. But in any event, there's nothing to indicate that the people that wrote this papyrus knew anything about a Pentateuch, knew anything about the laws of, of Passover that we find in the Pentateuch. And indeed, the this, this same papyrus opens with the writer uh, greeting the, the addressee or the addressees uh, with a with greetings from the gods in the plural. So there, there's very little reason to think that that this letter or, or in fact any of the, the writings from Elephantine reflect knowledge of the Torah or or any kind of um, practices which which correlate with uh, pro prohibitions or or uh, positive commandments that we find in the Torah. The the, the Elephantine Judeans seem to have known nothing of the Torah. What evidence is provided regarding the history of Yom Kippur and the observance of the Day of Atonement? All right, so again, first century of the Common Era, we have evidence that the Judeans were widely keeping uh, keeping the, the, the laws of the Day of Atonement, were fasting on the Day of Atonement. Philo of Alexandria tells us that, uh, this is actually quite interesting, that all Judeans fasted on Yom Kippur. He writes that even those that don't usually uh, keep the, the laws in their day-to-day -day lives, those that are that are not particularly pious, I think that's that's the term that he uses. Um, nevertheless, on Yom Kippur they they fast. I, I find this quite interesting because we have quite a similar situation today. You'll have uh, plenty of Jews that are not usually observant of the laws of the Torah in their daily lives on Yom Kippur will fast. I don't remember the, the statistics, but I know that in Israel, there have been studies which show that like 80% uh, of Jews today uh, fast on Yom Kippur, even those that don't regard themselves as usually observant. So this, this was the case already in the first century of the Common Era. Uh, when we go backwards in time, we find in the first century before the common era, and as far as I remember in the second century of the common era, there might even be some evidence as well that that uh, people were, were fasting on Yom Kippur. Prior to this time, prior to the second century before the common era for sure, there's no evidence that that, that anyone was, was fasting on Yom Kippur. Actually, to the contrary, uh, there's th that same story that I told you in, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 8, which tells of Ezra standing on a wooden platform reading from the Torah before the, the, the assembled people. Uh, so it says that he they discovered in the Torah, written there in the Torah, so that this was being read on the first day of the seventh month. Right? The first day of the seventh month, they found that it says that, that everyone should go out and build booths for the holiday of Sukkot. And everyone went out and built, built booths. Now, that's all good and well, except that according to the Torah, the uh, booths are to be built on the 15th day of the seventh month. 
and it, there's no Yom Kippur in the middle. It doesn't say that they discovered that uh, you should fast on the 10th day of the seventh month. That's what you would have expected if that was something which was, uh, which was known and, and being observed. We don't find that uh, in, in, in the book of, of Nehemiah, uh, which is quite, quite telling. The bottom line is that we have no evidence of a Yom Kippur, any kind of observance on Yom Kippur, uh, including fasting, having been widely observed any time prior to, to the Haskinian period. What evidence may be derived from funerary art? How does funerary art show up in your book? Okay, so funerary art, um, well, let, let, we can talk perhaps about art in general. So uh, I, I have a chapter in the book on figural art, and we know that the second commandment of the Ten Commandments is uh, not to make any graven images. Again, we're going to start with the first century of the Common Era as our benchmark. In the first century of the Common Era, this rule, second commandment of the Ten Commandments, was widely observed. So we have a lot of Jewish art, a lot of Judean art from the first century uh, of the Common Era. We have funerary art, as you mentioned. So we have burial caves with artwork engraved into their walls. We have bone boxes with art, which are extraordinarily uh, beautifully engraved. And we have, we have in homes, mosaic floors and frescoes and stuccos. All of this art is without figural designs. So we never have images of humans or animals in any of this artwork. It's always either floral, or geometric, never images of humans or animals. This is true also of the coins that Judeans uh, minted in the first century of the Common Era. It wasn't only actually Jude on the coins that Judeans minted for themselves, it was also the coins that the Roman governors and procurators that were ruling over Judea part of, during parts of the first century of the Common Era, they also never included uh, images of humans or animals, most tellingly the emperor doesn't appear on any of these coins. And this is clearly uh, in, in keeping with the second commandment. We have this also in the first century before the common era and in the second century before the common era. And in fact, we can date very well, because these are coins, we can date them quite well. The earliest coins that were minted by the Hasmoneans were minted in year 132-131 BCE by uh, a Hasmonean ruler named John Hyrcanus, John Hyrcanus I. And what's so telling about these Hasmonean coins is that they, instead of what we would expect to find on a coin, right? What, what would one expect to find on a coin minted by a, a king or other, other kind of ruler, an emperor or king? We expect to find the image of that ruler. We find that today, for example, in monarchies where we have the, the image of the Queen of England. Uh, may she rest in peace. Uh, soon these coins and, and bills will all be exchanged for the current King of England. We have on coinage in Scandinavia where there's uh, kings and queens, uh, the image of the king or the queen, Holland and so on and so forth, Spain. Uh, wherever we have a monarchy, we always have the image of the monarch, 
uh, on the on the coins. And this was the case in antiquity as well. This phenomenon begins in antiquity. And when we look at the Hasmonean coinage, what we find is, is actually quite telling. Instead of the figural image, instead of the graphic image of the Hasmonean leader, what we have is text which describes the leader. It gives his name and his title in, in, uh, in great detail, but without an image, without an actual graphic image. So uh, on the coins of John Herkinus, for example, it says, Yohanan HaKohen HaGadol Rosh Hever HaYehudi. That's a lot of words. That's a lot of text. It means John, the high priest, the, and head of the council of the Judeans. So this is the title of the man. And I would call this a textural portrait, which, which replaces a graphic portrait that we would have expected. Instead, we have a textual portrait. This is important to me because as far as I can tell, this is a clear sign that the Judeans are actively refraining from depicting their leader on their coins. This could be well, as I said, well dated to the uh, to the middle of the second century before the Common Era. Prior to this, when we look at Judean art and particularly the coins, coins that we have from the third century before the Common Era and from the fourth century before the Common Era, every single Judean coin has figural art on it. It has either an animal or a human figure or both, and sometimes we even have gods, foreign gods on Judean coins. Uh, and these are coins which are being minted by Judeans in Judea with names of Judean officials, names like uh, Hezekiah, the, the governor. And we have one coin which has the name of the Judean high priest, Yohanan HaKohen. This is not the same as John Herkinus. This is an earlier a Judean high priest living in the fourth century before the common era, which and, and on this coin we have an e not an eagle a um, an owl, which is the attribute of Athena, the goddess Athena. So the the images that we have on these coins not only do they uh, do they contravene the second commandment, but they also in, sometimes include uh, foreign deities or attributes uh, connected to foreign deities. Athena appears on some of the Judean coins as well. Um, and like this situation with the catfish bones that we find in Judea during the Persian period, the fact that we have these uh, images on Judean coins uh, seems to me uh, to, to, to be clearly uh, indicating that the Torah was not being widely observed. Now, this could be anecdotal, but the, there, there what we can certainly say is that there is no positive evidence that at this time, Judeans were keeping uh, the second commandment uh, anytime earlier than the second century before the coming in. Where does the term Judaism come from? What insights does your book suggest regarding this? Okay, that's a good question. So. I don't get too much into detail about uh, about the term, and the reason for that is that in antiquity, the reason for that is because uh, the term only appears quite rarely uh, in in antiquity. And there there is a book that came out, I believe it was in two thousand and nineteen, 
by uh, a scholar named Daniel Boyarin, who the, the book is called Judaism, uh, a Genealogy of a Modern Notion. And in this book, he shows that the term Judaism doesn't appear in any languages used by Jews before we reach the common era. There are a few exceptions in, in early texts, um, Maccabees and, uh, and let, letters of Paul, where the, the term appears uh, a few times. But the, the term after that, the term doesn't appear in any Jewish writings prior to the modern era. And the reason I think that this is the case is not because Judaism didn't exist, uh, but because there simply wasn't a need for, there wasn't a need to talk about it. There wasn't a need for a word to, uh, to describe something which was just so embedded in the matrix of, of everyday Jewish life. Um, so, you know, when we're, when we're talking about a period of time when, when Jews are keeping the laws of the Torah in their daily lives, we don't need a word for that. It's only when we get to the modern era, when not keeping the laws of the Torah suddenly becomes an option that a word needs to, you know, a, 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 a reified word needs to appear to, to describe what it means to keep the Torah. So when we talk about antiquity, the word does appear actually in Maccabees when we're talking about Judaism versus Hellenism. And also Paul uh, in, in the context of Judaism, meaning keeping you know, the Judean way of life in accordance with the rules of the Torah versus you know, not keeping the rules of the Torah. So it's, it's rare that we actually have the term. Um, so I, I mentioned this a bit in, in my introduction when I'm describing what I mean when I use the term Judaism, but, um, but the word is actually quite rare in, in antiquity. The, the word, I, uh, I should point out, comes from the, the Greek Udaismos, which, you know, is um, translated into English as, as Judaism. Should we use the term ancient Judaism or ancient Judaism's plural, which is more accurate. What is at stake in the two possibilities? Should we speak of the or origins of Judaism or the origins of Judaism's plural? Okay. So, so Jacob Neusner, I think he was the first to, uh, to, 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 to make this uh, comment. Jacob Neusser, of course, the famous uh, scholar of, of um, particularly ancient uh, rabbinic uh, literature. Um, he wrote, I don't know, hundreds of books. And he made the claim that we shouldn't talk about ancient Judaism in the single, in the singular, but rather ancient Judaisms in the plural. And he has a point in that the, there was no monolithic Judaism. Uh, Jews were disagreeing about Judaism from the get-go, and this is this is certainly the case. Um, but I, I I think it's it's a little bit silly to, to have this discussion because in the end of the day, there was something common about the way of life that ancient Judeans followed. Right there, there was a commonality. And that commonality was that the Torah 
is a base text upon which uh, Judeans need to be governing their lives. So we have the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. In it, we have laws that God is said to have given to Moses. Judeans need to be keeping those rules, right? That was commonly agreed upon, and I think that we can call Judaism. Exactly how that is to be interpreted, how that is to be put into practice, was, of course, uh, argued from the beginning. So from the earliest days that Judeans first began to put into practice the laws of the Torah, they were arguing about how that should be done. And I'm, I'm already telling jokes, so I'll tell another joke. This is, this is a famous one. Right? A, a Jew was uh, stranded on a desert island, and he was living there for many years. And then uh, finally, he was, uh, a helicopter went by and discovered him, and he was saved. And when the rescuers come to the island, they discover that there are this is one man that that was desert that was uh, left that was left on this desert island. He has two synagogues that he built. So the rescuers ask, "Why did why are there two synagogues here? Why did you build for yourself two synagogues?" So the man says, "Isn't it obvious? This is the synagogue that I go to, and this is the synagogue that I don't go to." So Torah, it's impossible to have Torah that's being kept without people arguing over it. And the reason is quite simple. The, the Pentateuch is a, is, a, is a text. It's more or less fixed by this time. But when we get to the, uh, the, the first century of the Common Era, first century before the Common Era, even second century before the Common Era, the text is more or less fixed. But the interpretation of the text is anything but fixed, is, is dynamic. The text is opaque. So when it says, for example, you shall do no work on the Sabbath, what do we mean by work? What do we mean by the Sabbath? When does the Sabbath begin? When does the Sabbath end? Uh, what is the definition of work? What do we do in a case where uh, there's danger to life? Does that override the Sabbath? There's war. Does that override the Sabbath? All of these things are not written in the text itself. And so from the moment that, that these laws were considered something which needs to be kept, Judeans were arguing over how to keep these rules. Right? That the, the, the arguments, the, the debates that we find, for example, in rabbinic literature, but also in the Dead Sea Scrolls, begin when the Torah is, is, is being kept. And so when we're talking about Judaism versus Judaism, yes, people were arguing about how the rules of the Torah should be kept. Um, but but I think we certainly can talk about a, a commonality, and that is that the rules should be kept. That was that was commonly agreed upon. Um, I, I see that we're getting close to uh, close to an hour. Might have already passed it. So I, I I should say something about the the final chapter. What I do in the final chapter, please. please um, do. Okay. So so I, I, we've covered a lot of ground here, and what. I do in the final chapter is I say, okay, let's look before the um, before the terminus antiquem. Let's see what kind of evidence we have. So we saw evidence from Elephantine, which indicates that Judeans were worshiping foreign gods, uh, were swearing oaths by names of foreign gods, and no evidence of Torah observance. We saw catfish uh, being eaten in Jerusalem during this period of time. We saw 
far, you know, we saw graven images on the coins in the Persian period in Judea. We find similar evidence in Babylonia of Judeans swearing by, by foreign gods. The, the, the bottom line is that the Persian period seems to be not a good period of time within which we should be seeking the emergence of a widespread observance of Torah law. Moving forward, we can then look at the early Hellenistic period uh, and the late Hellenistic period to see perhaps these are better times. And it seems that, that, that the Hellenistic period is a much more apt period of time within which to seek the emergence of, of Judaism. Um, so we have a couple of interesting things going on during the Hellenistic period. In the early Hellenistic period, the Judeans come into contact for the first time with Greek culture. And this is the first period of time when, you know, Judean populations throughout what had been the Persian Empire are now under Greek rule. And we know uh, something about legal history, that it was the Greeks that invented the notion of written law. So prior to, uh, prior to the Greeks, we have in ancient Near East, in Mesopotamia, uh, law collections like the Hammurabi collection of laws, uh, Shnuna, so-called Code of Ashnuna, um, where we have legal texts but they weren't considered the law itself. We know this because we have court dockets that have survived from Mesopotamia, which never cite any of these so-called law codes. So these were actually not law codes. Scholars have, have recognized this for, for, for decades. These were not law codes. These were not the law as, as we would understand the law today. It was actually the Greeks that had invented this notion of written law. And one of the uh, suggestions that I explore in this book is um, is an idea that was first uh, posited by a scholar named Mike, Michael Lefebvre, who suggested that it was only during the Hellenistic period that the Pentateuch was recharacterized from a descriptive uh, book of, of, of laws, a legal book, to a prescriptive uh, legal book. And I developed this idea uh, by considering the fact that it, it was perhaps under this Greek influence that the Judeans adopted the Torah as their, their system of, of written law. So this could have happened as early as uh, the early Hellenistic period, let's say the third century before the Common Era. Um, but perhaps a more likely scenario is that it was actually under Hasmonean rule that, that, that this happened. So we have the Maccabean revolt and Judeans gaining independence from their uh, Greek overlords for the first time in the middle of the second century before the common era. And um, this suggestion that I explore in this book, it's, it's conjectural, but the suggestion that I explore is that it was actually the Hasmoneans themselves that chose to adopt uh, the Pentateuch as the law of the land. Uh, this would have served as you know, a rallying point around which the newly independent Judeans uh, could have gathered together under you know, the rule of the Hasmoneans. This would have been a, I, I refer to this as an amalgamated declaration of independence and constitution, right? 
we take the the American model as 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 a metaphor. Uh, we have in the Torah both, you know, stories of the origins of of the people of Israel, which is like the Declaration of Independence, together with the laws themselves. That's like the Constitution. The Hasmoneans adopt adopted the Torah. This is the suggestion that I make. The Hasmoneans were the ones that adopted the Torah as the uh, as the law of the land, as this Declaration of Independence and Constitution for the newly independent Judean state. Now, again, this is conjectural. We don't have any actual evidence that this is what happened, but we do have evidence that the later Hasmonean rulers uh, actually did this with the non-Judeans that they had conquered. We know, for example, that John Hyrcanus I, at the end of the second century before the Common Era, conquered the Edomians, and this this was a uh, non-Judean uh, ethnic group that lived to the south of Judea. When he conquered them, he enforced circumcision and the rest of the laws of the Torah on these people that he conquered. And this uh, this is something which. It seems that he did as well with the Samaritans. And the son of John Harkness I, Aristobulus I, is said to have done the same thing with the Eturians that he conquered in the north. So, you know, he, he also he forced them to circumcise themselves and to, to accept the laws of the Torah. So if the later Hasmonean rulers were doing this to Semitic groups that they had conquered, it seems plausible to me that either they or their predecessors had done something very similar with the Judeans themselves. So this, this would suggest that it was, in fact, the Hasmoneans that had this, uh, this modus operandi of, of enforcing the laws of the Torah upon the people that, that they were governing. I, I don't think it's unlikely that the Hasmoneans might have done this with, with the Judeans themselves. So, so this is this, this is the concluding chapter uh, of the book where I explore the idea that uh, Judaism likely emerged not in the Persian period, but rather uh, in the Hellenistic period, perhaps as late as the, the, the end of the Hellenistic period under the Hasmoneans themselves. What are some new directions for academic research you would like to see pursued in light of your book's findings? That is a good question. Um, I think we can we can go in uh, both directions. So we can go uh, earlier periods, and to try once we recognize that there's little reason to think that the Torah was widely observed uh, prior to the Hasmonean period. I think it opens up new areas of of inquiry uh, in, in in these earlier periods. So once we're freed from the notion that 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 the Torah was widely known, we no longer have to interpret all kinds of, we no longer have to force uh, the, a, a Torah-centric understanding on earlier finds. And this is this has often been done. So for example, uh, with the Elephantine material, uh, there are scholars that force a, a Torah understanding on, on these materials in, in very awkward ways. And I think once we're freed from this uh, notion that the Torah was necessarily well known uh, uh, in this early period, we can we can read these materials uh, 
in much much more interesting ways. For example, the the um, so called Passover papyrus. Uh, there's a scholar named God Barnea who recently gave a lecture about this papyrus where he uh, looks at the idea that perhaps, in fact, this, this has nothing to do with Passover, but rather this has to do with some kind of Zoroastrian ritual, uh, which relates to uh, preparation of some kind of uh, drink. Uh, and it's a fa fascinating uh, uh, hypothesis that he, that he posited this was at a, a conference uh, he recently organized in uh, in Haifa about three weeks ago. Um, the point is that the, once we are freed from the idea that Judaism uh, existed at such an early period of time, we can we can start to look at the evidence uh, with fresh eyes, and I, I think there's a lot of potential there. As we bring the dialogue today to a close, can you tell us about your current research or your next project now that this is behind you? Yes. So right now I'm working on a project uh, looking at the tefillin from the Judean desert. I am publishing a comprehensive uh, report publication on all of these, these finds. So this includes um, tefillin, uh, ancient tefillin cases and ancient tefillin slips. I'm looking at this from you know every possible aspect, both in terms of the texts that are involved and in terms of the materials that are involved. So I, I'm looking at the uh, the skin materials, what kind of skin uh, these material these uh, tefillin are written on, uh, how the skin is prepared, um, you know if the skin is split, which sides of the skin are written on, so on and so forth. Uh, I'm doing a new project looking at the paleography to try to date the, the tefillin. These are things which surprisingly have never been done before, um, mostly because the scholars that had, the original scholars that had published these tefillin finds were the original Dead Sea Scroll team that were interested mostly in the tefillin as biblical texts, as examples of biblical texts. They weren't interested in these as ritual objects. So the materials were ignored, and even things as basic as the paleography were never really um, properly done. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm working on that right now. Uh, I don't know when it will be done, but hopefully within the next year or two, uh, I should have a manuscript uh, with, with, with all of this uh, having been accomplished. Thank you. It sounds like an amazing project. I, I wish you the best of luck in that work. Thank you. Um, as we bring our dialogue today to a close, I'm your host on the New Books in Jewish Studies podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I have been in dialogue with Professor Jonathan Adler. He is head of the Institute of Archaeology at Ariel University in Israel. We have been discussing his new book, The Origins of Judaism, an Archaeological Historical Reappraisal, published in New Haven by Yale University Press, 2022. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Ari. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.